everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. In a world where we've got mail. <laughs> this is the Letters Podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You hear us talk so much, we wanted to yield the floor to you, give you your own show. And uh, yeah, you write in, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email. We answer them. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this email, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. You don't have to. You can call me Whitney. Just write in. Wow, that was fast. Are you, are you trying to be the next Micro Machines guy? Yeah, his name is John Mashita. And no, I could never be as fast as that guy. Well, not with that attitude. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is our, this is our uh, Letters podcast. Uh, we love hearing from you. We hear from a lot of people every week. We don't have time to read every single email, but we try to get through as many as we can. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't like to waste a lot of time at the beginning of this email with idle chit-chat. Did you say email? With this podcast. This email, this podcast. Whatever this is, it's on the internet. Dang it, it's idle chit-chat already. <laughs> We're just going to dive right in uh, with our letters. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. Whitney, tell us about our first email. Uh, here's a letter from Folk. Hello, Folk. Hello. Uh, hi, William and Whitney. Uh, you have mentioned Godzilla here and there over the last few weeks. Yes. Have we? I am, as we are. I think, uh, I think we have, uh, yes. <laughs> as we do. <laughs> it's happened. Uh, that has got me thinking about my relationship to those movies. I never really got the appeal of the older Japanese movies. <gasps> For shame, sir. <laughs> I'm wringing don't, my hanky right now. Don't listen uh, to Whitney. Ever. Uh, and uh, and recently I started to watch Shin Godzilla, but I was interrupted after 20 minutes and I haven't gotten back yet. So I guess it's fair to say that Godzilla is not my thing. But there is one exception. I really liked the 2014 movie from Gareth Edwards. Hmm. The human drama is interesting enough, and the perspective of the monster scenes are shown uh, that are shown impressed me a lot. Uh, just seeing a foot or shoulder between high-rises made me relate to the people on the ground. And even the... The sparing use of those scenes helped with that. Because of its speed, one person would not be so close to Godzilla for long. Uh, not to say that no other Godzilla movie ever tried to do this. I haven't seen enough to know that, but this time it really worked for me. Uh, and if you don't feel like talking about Godzilla for long, here are a few related questions. Do you have an odd favorite movie in any franchise or uh, any opinion about a film series that you feel like you are alone with? Greetings from Germany, Falk. Uh, okay, well, that, uh, by the way, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Um, let's start with that particular Godzilla. Now, Whitney, you're a Godzilla expert. You've seen every Godzilla. Uh, I, I suppose as, as much as anybody who's just watched them all, but yeah. Well, I mean, but you mm. you know more than I do. I've only seen a few Godzillas here mm. and there. My take on the uh, Gareth Edwards Godzilla mm. is it's pretty good. It's the human it drama. Okay. The human drama is bad, but in my experience, that's kind of par for the course. Yeah. But I actually do agree with Falk. I think one of the things I really liked about that movie was its sense of scale and I think the attempt to show as much of the overwhelming, gigantic action from the lower angles mm. made it feel pretty damn epic. You never get that, like, head and shoulders, like, medium shot of Godzilla just walking around as if the camera's <laughs> at the same size as Godzilla. Oh. It always feels like these are giant leviathans. Hmm. And I do think that was a good approach. What do you think? Um, I love that head and shoulders look of Godzilla. Oh, God. The, the the scenes of the monsters sort of emerging out of the inky depths or, you know, exploding out of a laboratory and just sort of looking around at a city like uh, <laughs> board is <laughs> is one of my favorite moments in Godzilla movies. The, there's something uh, just the giddy third grader inside of me just loves uh, <laughs> a, a, a certain level of really chintzy destruction. So I really like those old Godzilla movies. Uh, can you relate to the humans? No, I can relate to the monsters. Yeah. That's kind of the fun of those old movies. Are they, is, is, they really uh, having that much going on? 
not in terms of like rich character emotional arcs, but you know, in, in terms of rooting for a monster to win a fight, but you definitely have a favorite, don't but, you? But think about think about how many other movies mm. are about like say animals, for mm. example. Like um I was, I was about to say Homeward Bound, but you know, those animals can talk in voiceover, so let's pull it back mm. a bit and like say Lassie. Okay. Okay. Lassie is imbued with a lot of character. Exactly. Okay. But do you feel like Godzilla gets as much character as Lassie? I mean, it's a different character, obviously. Absolutely Godzilla okay. does. I think Godzilla has way more character because Godzilla is an extraordinary being. It's a yeah. fantasy creature. Uh, not only is Godzilla gigantic, but Godzilla is, you know, has a human actor inside so that there's a lot of little uh, uh, acting uh, moments for Godzilla where we get a good sense of uh, sort of his character. And his character is... Uh, Divorced dad is working as a bouncer now. <laughs> really, really handle his liquor, and is not going to put up with your shit. You know that Godzilla has a a lot of character. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll 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 look after your kid this weekend. But I, I you look, yeah. King Geeter is being a bastard again. We got to get him out of the bar. Look, if, if Godzilla was a, a, a human, uh-huh. if played by a human, just like no mon- no mm-hmm. outfit, just person. The wrestler era Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Mickey Rourke. I was going to say Lemmy from Motorhead. Okay. You know, just an, an old world tough guy. Yeah. That's Godzilla. And I get a lot of that vibe from Godzilla. And, you know, when, when I watch the Gareth Edwards Godzilla, I don't get anything from the monster. I get, and I'm not getting much from the human characters either. Like there's a lot of dramatic moments, but I don't have a deep amount of caring for soldier man and his wife or guy who dies in basement or, or other person who dies in basement. Uh, there, there's just not a lot of actual human drama because the destruction is so overwhelming. We can't really pay attention to that drama any, after a while. Mm. And I, and I was like a lot of other people really frustrated with how little we spend with how little time we spend with the actual monster. It's like the, the first time we see Godzilla, there's this big glory shot looking up. We get a good sense of scale, but then the camera doesn't pan up to let us see what the monster's up to. Mm-hmm. It cuts away and it shows like a news report. Well, uh, the, initially, the, after know, a while, it settles in. Or, like, you know, the, the last monster, act the is monster's just charging monster through a city and there's like, oh, great, we get to see Godzilla. And then we like shut doors and it's like we have to hide from this thing. And OK, that shows a, a great amount of panic, I suppose, but... I feel that that sort of thing is a lot greater conveyed in the first Godzilla movie or Shin Godzilla, which is about the bureaucracy trying to fight the monster. And there's a lot of time spent in like boardrooms and and laboratories trying to figure out what this thing is and how to deal with this crisis. Um, Shin Godzilla is much more a metaphor for like the Fukushima disaster than it is for the atom bomb, which is... Yeah, uh, if you're going to update it, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. And I think Gareth Edwards was an attempt to sort of show this like sort of 9-11 kind yeah, of American yeah. imagery, which at the very least is closer in spirit mm. to what Godzilla started as yeah. than what Roland Emmerich did to it, which was just make it cheesy and fun, which, mm. you know, again, it's a bad movie, but Godzilla has also been cheesy and fun. Yeah. So that's not entirely outside the realm of it. I mean, we, we've been through smog monsters and mecha Godzillas. There's been and space aliens of all kinds. Uh, yeah. God, the Godzilla series is pretty silly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, that, Roland Emmerich one, the one from 1998, is, it's not the right kind of silly. It's more like a comedy film with a Godzilla in it. Mm. Uh, Regarding the second question, which is, uh, are there any films in a franchise which rather unusually are our favorites? Mm. Um, And I think everyone who watches a lot of movies, you're bound to run into one of these. You can't all 
like the most popular one mm-hmm. equally. Like eventually you're going to run into a movie franchise where like your favorite diehard is live free or diehard. Mm-hmm. Like that's not mine, but that's bound to be someone out there. And uh, yeah, I have a whole bunch of those. Um, offhand, uh, I would say uh, my favorite Home Alone is Home Alone 5. Mm-hmm. That's the good one. <laughs> You're right. Home Alone 5, mm-hmm. Holiday Heist. Because as uh, Home Alone 1 works as a child's fantasy. It's a fantasy of being, having the house all to yourself, being able to do whatever you want. That's fine. Beyond that, I don't think the movie works very well. I really yeah, don't. Yeah, it's... It just has the one gag, and it just keeps mm. on playing on And again, it. when you're a kid, that's more than enough. But as an adult, I need more. Home Alone 2 doesn't work for me as much. There are parts of it I like, but it doesn't work for me as much because Kevin knows he's screwing over his family. Mm. He knows it every he's, second. He's doing it. He's, he's, he's cruel deliberately in that one. Yeah, there's a lot of shit that doesn't work in that one. But at its core, it's just it's a way more cynical enterprise, and mm. I don't think it works. Home Alone 3 is bad. Uh, Home Alone Four is worse. <laughs> it's so Home, bad. Home Alone Four was the pilot, like the failed pilot. I still don't know what the hell they thought you know, that they, series. There were going to be, be a, there was going to be a Home Alone series, and they shot a pilot, which yeah. was kind of a retread of Home Alone. Kind of, but kind, the, yeah, but the of. mom and dad got divorced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Home Alone Five, which has nothing to do with the Kevin original McAllister, series at yeah. all, um, is about a couple of kids that get trapped in their house while a bunch of thieves uh, mm. played by um, Malcolm McDowell and Debbie Mazar, and I forget who the other guy is, uh, they're trying to steal old loot that's in their basement back when it was like um, a prohibition era speakeasy. And they actually think it all out. Like, they're actually like, why... What the, what home- the heist is going to be, what the motivations of the characters are. Yeah, why, why they're stuck there in a unique way. Uh, they actually, like... It actually just works as a film. Mm. It's very fun. It's genuinely funny. The cast is quite good. It's a really good movie. Like, it's not brilliant <laughs> or anything, but it mm. just works on every level it's supposed to. And I can't say that about the other Home Alones. The best Home Alone movie is still the aggression scale. But uh, <laughs> Well, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> or uh, or what was the one with uh, Kevin James uh, just last year? No, oh, not, uh, Becky. Not, not, Be- Becky. I, I don't know Mandy. if that's a Home Alone so much as just a home invasion. But, yeah, that's just, yeah. But like, the aggression scale is, is more of a Home Alone, I think, yeah. than that. Um, that, that. That's basically, imagine Home Alone... If Kevin was a burgeoning serial killer, <laughs> which which he kind of was in Home Alone too, so yeah, yeah it just kind of confronts it right up, up front. Aggression scale is not talked about a lot, but it's a really cool film. Uh, series uh, entries, I I I like Hellraiser two better than Hellraiser. That's not Same. so unpopular. Uh, Prom Night three is just as good as Prom Night two, if not better. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, golly, what else? Um, um, I, Exorcist I, because, three. I, th- I think it's so that that one's been rescued. I think a lot of people yeah, have okay. acknowledged Exorcist three. That's by fair. Now. That's fair. Okay, Terminator um, three. You think? Ter- yeah, Terminator three is okay. It's good. Good nonstop kind of action it, spectacular. It's not my favorite in the series, mm. but I think it is way better than people give it credit for. Mm. The action's awesome, and the ending is really daring. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Because it was the first one I saw in the series, I don't mind Highlander two, where they oh. where they changed it into a science oh. fiction film where it was previously a fantasy film. Oh, uh, so I thought that was just sort of the premise going in. It wasn't until years later that I saw the original Highlander saying, "Wait a minute, they did a lot of weird stuff in that second movie." <laughs> it's like I'm watching. Oh, this is a fun sci fi romp sort of thing about immortal aliens. Mm. They weren't aliens originally. I'm the only person I know whose favorite Harry Potter film is Goblet of Fire. I like that one too. I like I like that. The second one is my favorite. I know, and I think I think I've heard some people say that. But Goblet of Fire. I mean, I don't know anyone who hates it, mm. 
But Goblet of Fire works for me because I think it's the one film that really balances the adventure, the you know sort of ongoing storyline, but also the fact that they're in school. Yeah, the, which a like, lot of the other films forget about sometimes. Like that, they're actually need to a, study and do kid stuff. That, that was a beef I had with the second one. It's like this is a boarding school, and in that one, there's like they're out of uni- they're out of their uniforms a lot. They're just mm. sort of going off and on trips a lot. They're not in class at all in that movie. Also, it's muddy and miserable to look at. I, I don't like that yeah. third one so much. I, uh, I I like it more than you do. I, I, know I, th- I think they made some mistakes com- moving away from some yeah. of that. Common stuff, common but. wisdom is that that third one is the best one, but I like the second one much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like Star Wars and The Last Jedi more than I like The Empire Strikes Back, which I know is heretical to most people. I think I think it's okay. I think, well, it's all okay. Of course it is. But I don't think it's too revolutionary to say you like the original Star Wars best. I guess not. But, Last uh, Jedi over Empire is probably uncommon, even for mm. people who really love Last Jedi, myself included. Um, but I'm sure we all have them. Yeah. yeah. Um, moving on. Let's. Uh, who's our next yeah. letter from? Here, here's a letter from uh, just the letter T. Hello, T. Hi. Uh, hi, guys. I'm writing, having just read a statement from Charisma Carpenter. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, which basically confirms everything Ray Fisher claimed about Joss Whedon, and uh, uh, this must have been written before the Michelle Trachtenberg statement as well. Which was right around and, that time. Yeah. Uh, this is something that kept uh, that kept happening since the Times Up movement started, and then multiply that by J.K. Rowling, and here we are. Uh, I know all human beings are flawed, and that shitty people have made media uh, that I consume since time immemorial. As I believe Bibbs pointed out in a recent Letters episode, Alfred Hitchcock was a miserable human being, but perhaps because he died when I was two, I can watch, for example, Rebecca, knowing how poorly he treated Joan Fontaine on the set. I can acknowledge that Gene Roddenberry, while having many admirable qualities, also had a messy personal life and some really seriously retrograde views of women, but I'm still able to love Star Trek. I also believe that Star Trek belongs as much to its various other stewards, particularly since after 55 years, Trek has been without him longer than it has been with him. Uh, fast forward to the present day, and I find myself having a really hard time watching The Usual Suspects without, yeah. uh, without the knowledge of who Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey are in the back of my mind. I'm honestly unsure if I'll ever be able to engage with Harry Potter again, and I initially encountered it as a young adult and not as a child, and now Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is very important to my young adulthood, might also need to carry an asterisk. I truly don't know if one can death of the author something so intrinsically tied to a particular person as is uh, Potter as is Buffy. Uh, that is that ultimately even possible? Am I a hypocrite for being able to do it, but for some, but not at all? Uh, excuse me, be able to do it for some, but not all. Uh, I'm sorry if this is a huge bummer. As ever, <laughs> thanks for everything you do, T. Well, it is a huge bummer, mm. um, and it's really well, it's disappointing, and it's tragic, and it's infuriating, and a lot of people are just having all of their worst suspicions confirmed, mm. and. It sucks. It sucks, especially for everybody who had to go through some terrible behavior yeah, on all these various it, sets. It's it, not a safe it's, work uh, environment. They should never have been forced to suffer through that. It, it that su- sucks. Yeah. It sucks most for the pe- for the victims of these people. Yeah, we have to keep that uh, in, in who, I think uh, in, yeah. in context. Where as much as it's like, mm. oh, um, do I still get to enjoy Buffy? I, uh, that's did, the thing did, yeah. for me. I, let's, every, well, first when of I all, think about ask, watching Buffy yeah. again, I think about, am I going to be so distracted by all the misery I noticed people were going through? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as you put it, horrible people can indeed make great art. The problem is we're holding ourselves to high standards and we should maybe not encourage those people by consuming their art. Yeah. Especially when uh, they're still around. Like again, Hitchcock is dead. Mm, mm. And so when we watch a Hitchcock movie and when we say, I can appreciate the quality of a Hitchcock movie, 
we're not promoting his work mm-hmm. and like supporting like a legal defense fund for him. Yeah. Like that's, that's, yeah. that is a key difference. I think. It's like, yeah. You, you rent, you rent a Roman Polanski movie. He's going to get some of that money. Yeah. And, and that's and something you have to think about. That's something you have to think about. Where is like, your money going? Yeah. Um, here, here's my statement on this. Criticism doesn't stop. No. Criticism is an evolving form because people and society are always changing. Uh, we can construct a canon, but we should reconstruct that canon, not every few years, every day. Constantly. We need to constantly look at the canon that we're constructing in our minds and take things off of it and rearrange it con- constantly because we're going to be reconsidering these things. Uh, ha- you know, Look at the Grand Reckoning we've been having with, I call it Grand Reckoning just because of the way it was initially treated versus how we think of it now, the silence of the lambs and how, uh, what, what a horrendous damage that did to uh, the trans community and uh, views of trans people were set way back by the depictions of, uh, of trans people in that movie. Yeah. Many elements of the film are really, Uh, really great, but the actual hmm. tangible Hmm. effect that it had may very well be just a complete net negative. Like it's really shitty. I I encourage you to find an article that was written, published in the AV club just today when recording this episode by a Harmony Colangelo, a BJ Colangelo's wife, uh, who is trans and has been uh, fighting the silence of the lambs all her life and how just a horrendous time she's had with it. And uh, that article actually points out that, Jamie Gum is actually because of the circumstances of the character's creation is in many ways kind of the sympathetic character, even though that's the character that's like kidnapping and skinning people alive. Yeah. Now again, uh, you have you have to do like mm, you know that the context of the movie is hard to fight but off there yeah, maybe, the, but how, like how the, it's the, inviting multiple. The novel was written during the Reagan administration mm-hmm. and during all of these uh, medical uh, papers that were being published right at the time that were really doing a disservice to the trans community when as just before Mm. that uh, trans people were getting a lot more medical medical consideration. And then this paper, this ignorant paper was published and that changed a lot of medical practices. Pair that with uh, the Reagan administration's general homophobia and treatment of the gay community and also the AIDS crisis. Yeah. There's Uh, a lot of context. There's there's a lot of context that, yeah, all that context is in this wonderful article by Harmony Colangelo. So seek that out. Yeah. And that does bring into this conversation. Now that we know that uh, a lot of art and a lot of our favorite art and a lot of the most popular art Mm -hmm. was created by some pretty shitty human beings. Or at least was, or at least had a shitty impact in that case. Yeah. yeah, uh, Had a shitty impact or were made by horrible people. uh, Some of whom, uh, are, are just awful and some of whom actually uh, like uh, committed illegal acts. Yeah. Uh, we do need to reconsider those things and we do need to start to reconsider something that uh, every aging nerd has to face. Maybe you shouldn't be defined by a lot of that art. True. Uh, maybe you need to uh, understand that you can have taken those great lessons and survived through a tough period in your life using that art and also leave it behind. I, um, hmm. A lot of my sense yeah. of humor was informed by the Ren and Stimpy show. There you go. That's a wild show. I I loved its its grossness and its you know aggressive attitudes. Look up what John Chris Felucci did. He's not a good guy. No, um, he's not the only person who made that show. Mm. Um, and there therein he lies the other office. Show. That's oh, yeah. true. But there and therein lies some of the complexity here, which is that being in the realm of film and television and. A lot of these other mediums, uh, these are collaborative mediums, and the horrible people weren't responsible for everything about it. 
And the counter argument has been made is it's good that we're talking about all of these shitty things. Mm-hmm. It's good that we're thinking about trying to make sure that there are There's... better working environments and that we're trying to be more cognizant of themes that are actually hurtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's throwing out all the work of all these other people who didn't do that shitty stuff. Yeah. It sucks. And it does suck. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that you should be able to see these films. But it's important, I think, that we not in an attempt to let me let me backtrack. Mm. If if Buffy was really important to me growing up, okay, I'll say it. Uh, the show was taking place every season was one year in high school, and it was only one year ahead of me in high school. So it felt like it, I was like growing up with the show, mm. and I had a lot of I liked a lot of the writing, I liked a lot of the characters, I thought it was pretty clever, and Buffy was pretty important to me for for a while, and. The more I learned recently about what was going on, the more I started delving into Joss Whedon's filmography from an older perspective. We did like a whole Firefly podcast on our Patreon where we realized that Firefly is actually pretty fucked up. Like yeah. it has this huge cult cachet, but looking back on it now, away from really bad away from the cult like mentality <clears throat> that a lot of us had around Joss Whedon, you realize that actually this is gross, a lot mm-hmm. of it. And I have had to have this reckoning as well, mm-hmm. where uh, I cannot support that shit. But at the same time, Buffy was a formative work of art when I was growing up. It was yeah. it was part of my coming of age and, uh, artistic experience. And I am not. I don't think I'm going to be able to watch it again anytime soon, just because I'm going to be just so overwhelmed mm. with empathy and horror. Yeah. That I can't, I don't know if I'll be able to enjoy it. Yeah. But there may come a day later on, many years from now, where I'll be able to watch it again and go, this meant a lot to me, but. And the but, I think, is important. Yeah. Where you can watch some of these things and go, there's a lot of good work here, but you cannot turn off the part of your brain that is critical. Yeah. That uh, experiences in shame in some cases. Like, that's important, I think. We need to reckon with that if we're going to move forward. And and here's something else to consider. And this is something I'm taking directly from uh, Dave White, a a critic I greatly admire. I'm going to quote him here. Uh, This was when the film Ender's Game came out. Yeah. Uh, Orson Scott Card is a horrendous homophobe. Mm -hmm. He's gone on, like, right wing talk shows to talk about how gay marriage should not be a thing and is just a complete bigot. Yep. Ender's Game is a story about compassion and pacifism. In fact, it's an overwhelmingly positive story about compassion and welcoming and and pacifism. And Dave White said, I wish Orson Scott Card would read his own work. Yeah. Because he actually created this really uh, wonderfully compassionate work that he's not abiding by. Mm -hmm. He doesn't necessarily believe in the compassion he preached. A monster can create something with a good message. True. They may not, they're not living that message. Mm-hmm. They're doing horrible things. They're, they might be bigots or criminals. But I think it's acceptable to take a positive message from a negative person. I think that's, I think that's yeah. also true. I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. And I agree with Dave there. You, and I you, think... you have to keep in mind that that is a negative person. Yeah. And you need to take their own work and shove it in their face and saying, you said something the opposite of what you're living. Yeah, you said something profound and meaningful and empathetic. Look and listen. And kind. Yeah. Read your own goddamn work because you actually did something that is positive. Yeah. And you need to live to the standard you set for yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because otherwise mm. you're a massive hypocrite. Mm. And I think that's something mm. that a lot of, yes, 100%. Mm. 
Um, and again, I think that's that's the thing here, where if this art means something to you and you took something positive from it, that's yours. That's your takeaway. Yeah. You own that. This, that's, this, that's, you get to have that. that no one, no that, one has to take that away from you. And that's not death of the author. No. That's, that's something that, uh, that's your own interpretation. Yeah. And, and that's again, the, where you get yeah. to, where the thing gets to be yours rather than the, the author's. When we say death of the mm. author, what that means is we simply divorce the author from the work. Mm. And we can try to look at the work in a vacuum. That's not the way the world works right now. Uh, especially not in, not in mainstream popular culture where there's such a cult of celebrity around a lot of these mm-hmm. things. Um, you know, if you find some random book in a library that was written 500 years ago from an author no one has ever heard of, you're not going to know anything about that author. Maybe you can look at that on its own. But beyond that, that's not the world we live in. So, again, if your takeaway from it is positive, that's fine. But you cannot, I think, I think you have a responsibility as a, as a person, as a mature person, as mm-hmm. a person who's trying to be decent and conscious. You, you have a responsibility not to forget the other stuff while you enjoy it. And what yeah. that means is, on some level, this may always be tainted. And that's that. Like, at some point, we do have to accept simply that as a reality. We're not going to get to go back to this place where we unlearn what we know. Yeah. We don't get that. That sucks. But, again, what sucks more is people getting away with it. It sucks yeah. more than that. That's that's worse. So it's good that we know what we know. And we 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 have to we have to live with it and yeah. we just have to sit in it and we have to just say it's, that's it's, the way it is it's, it's okay to put things away yeah it's if you want o- to it's okay yeah. to uh take a positive message while acknowledging that it was made by a bad person mm-hmm. uh and it's also possible to uh not idolize people as highly as we have that's a lesson i've learned mm-hmm. that's a lesson i learned a long time ago <clears> and <throat> i think me. it's really important to remember mm. that if just because people make art you like doesn't mean that they're on, we they're should, on your wavelength. It's like a friend. Yeah, they're, they're not necessarily. Mm. They might be. There's mm. a lot of nice people out there. A lot of them make great art. Uh, but again, you, you shouldn't invest too much into the, the into any. Well, I don't say anything, but when you invest that much into something, then if that thing disappoints you in some way, especially yeah, I mean, in this serious way. It's going to hit you real hard. Yeah. And it, sometimes it's hard to accept. And some people go out of their way to try not to. And that sucks. Mm. Uh, so for me, I've been trying to make a concerted effort these last however many years, 10, 15, whatever it, whatever it is lately. As I've grown up, I'm like, I, I cannot be behind. Like, just because I like everything a director has done so far doesn't mean I'm always going to doesn't yeah. mean they can't disappoint me doesn't mean I can't find out something about them that taints the work and makes me look at it through a different lens and ruins mm. it like it's a living thing and you can it, it can it can be disappointing yeah. that's all I can say um to, to re- repeat criticism never ends yeah uh, anyway big old can of worms um sorry for those of you who may not have been in the mood to have that conversation but uh, yeah. It's in a conversation. We, sometimes we can't avoid it. Sometimes yeah, we do need to have these. It's something we need to talk about. So uh, yeah, and, and we, we thank you for asking. We yeah. we didn't have an opportunity to discuss this. It didn't come up organically in any of other shows because a lot of other shows are about mm. stuff in the past or about movies that don't really yeah, relate I mean, to it. And so, all right, yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Max. Hi, Hi Max. Max. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Mister McCool. Oh, that's me. Yeah. I am writing today with a confession, <gasps> a confession that makes many of my film fan friends gasp. 
and look at me like I grew three heads. I am not a fan of Martin Scorsese. Okay. Yes, I respect and appreciate that Mr. Scorsese is one of the greatest and most inf- uh, influential American filmmakers of all time. Over the past couple of years, I have attempted to watch as much of his filmography as I can, having only seen The Departed. But before doing so, there are some films of his that I love, The King of Comedy and Silence, particularly. Mm-hmm. But films that seem universally beloved, like Raging Bull, Casino, and even Goodfellas, just did not hit with me the way I hoped they would. Hmm. And I don't think it's a style or a content issue either, as I have liked some of the films he has influenced. Since taste is a subjective issue, it never worries me too much. So my question for you is, what are some directors or writers or actors that are almost universally beloved, but you haven't cared for their work? Hmm. Or what are some universally beloved films that you do not care for, but can appreciate the craft behind? to them thank you for everything you do every time i get out of the car uh after listening to one of your podcasts i always want to sit down on the couch and watch the movies for the rest of the day <laughs> signed max that's an honor thank yeah, you thank um you. and we had we had a lot of variations on this question like what popular movies do mm. you not care for and vice versa but i think the, the director of Ovra is uh an interesting one uh first off if if you've especially if you've given them a shot you're free to dislike any director's filmography if scorsese's <laughs> not for you scorsese's not yeah. for you fair Totally fine. Um, I, I think you you acknowledge the influence he's had, and I think that's that's all we can ask of you is just say, well, context matters. He did these things. Cool. Mm-hmm. You tried. Not for you. Fair enough. I'm a fan. Uh, there are some filmmakers who I just don't care for, uh, but I'm always willing to give them a shot, and I haven't seen every single thing any of them have all of them have ever done. Yeah, uh, I've gone on record as saying I can't really get into Fellini. <laughs> Fellini so, uh, is a, like like a hair past self indulgence. Yeah. Fellini, every Fellini, and I haven't seen everything Fellini's ever done. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day I'll give it a go and revisit some of the things that I've seen before. Try out some of the stuff I haven't seen, but. Mm-hmm. Fellini is not on my wavelength, at least not in yeah. my experience. Of like the four or five films I've seen from Fellini, I'm like, pass. Yeah. I, I started with eight and a half, which is kind of a mistake. Don't start with eight and a half. Eight and a half is his vertigo. Like yeah. you gotta like understand like where he's coming from Who before he you is. get a lot to of eight film and a half. Trends and, and even so then, like, I think it's indulgent and, bo- and really boring. <laughs> but I I wasn't on Fellini's wavelength until I saw La Dolce Vita, actually, okay. which is a really long film. I that one I actually like, haven't seen. Yeah, I liked La Dolce Vita, and then I also saw La Strada, which I thought was really wonderful, and uh, and also Knights of Cabiria. So I came around to Fellini. I do need to rewatch Amarcord, and I do need to rewatch Eight and a Half, because okay. those those are like classics that are still brought up often enough that I feel like I'm missing something. Uh, another one mm. who I've just, again, I've, I've liked some of his stuff okay, mm. but never really... I've never seen a Godard film where I'm like, yeah! <laughs> the closest I've come is Breathless. I get it. See Vive Chevy, it's like the better version of Breathless. So I'm told. That's one I haven't seen. Maybe I'll get around to that someday. But every time I see Godard stuff, I'm like, I get it. You, you think you're smart, and maybe you are. Like, that's kind of it. That's kind of where I am with a lot of his stuff. A lot of it seems so mannered and arch. Mm. And I get that that's sometimes the substance, but I don't like the substance. So it's just like, hey, what's what's this chocolate made out of? Well, it's chocolate, and then the substance inside is nougat. I'm like, oh, good, I love nougat. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> and this one's uh, with chocolate inside, and inside it's crunchy frog. And I'm like, pass. Thank you. I'm sure someone will enjoy that. <laughs> and that's kind of how I am with Ghidorah. Yeah. Uh, for the longest time, I was not on uh, John Ford's wavelength. I yeah. hadn't seen a lot of John Ford films, for one. 
Uh, he's famous for a certain kind of movie, but he actually made a whole bunch of different kinds. Of yeah, movies, yeah, you know? and I'm, I've had a larger sampling of John Ford. It's like, oh wait, he actually has like a point of view. Yeah. I used to hate the Searchers, and then I rewatched it. It's like, oh, this is pretty good. Yeah, I, you I saw didn't the feel... Informer, which is a really interesting yeah, moral the inf- film. The Informer's yeah. like, yeah, really, really good. I, I, I kind of like his Grapes of Wrath, uh, bits of it anyway. The John Carradine mm. bits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the John, John Carradine bits are great. The John Carradine bits yeah. of Grapes of Wrath is really, really good. It's a gorgeous Although, film. Not my favorite. Not not as good as Of Mice and Men from the year before, but uh, it's not as good as Russ Meyer's Mud Honey for God's sake. <laughs> well, nothing's as good as Russ Meyer's mud honey. Well, fair enough. Uh, and also he did a, 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 um, Stagecoach. Yeah. Which uh, I, I remember seeing like bits of a long time ago and just wasn't impressed by it. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is like the template for like a lot of action movies and mm-hmm. kind of still works. Uh, you, you can, there's mm. a, there's a straight line you can draw between Stagecoach and Die Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Totally. Um, but I, there's, a certain view of, uh, of like action films made by a particularly manly breed of director, mm, uh, macho, yeah, like yeah. a lot of macho, uh, like macho filmmaking that I've just never really been comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm seeing that now where there are some filmmakers who are building these big cults, and some of them I'm like, I like some of your stuff. Some of mm. them I'm like, really. Hmm. Uh, for example, uh, Christopher Nolan has a big old cult. Yeah, a lot of people love Christopher Nolan, worship at his altar, and indeed, I don't think he's ever made like in, an incompetent film. Like he's always except for bro- Tenet. <laughs> I was Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. Uh, there's a lot of ambition in it. You know, um, he's he's never seemed to have phoned it in. He's always making a big swing, even if it doesn't work. I can appreciate that. Like, I don't think Interstellar works. Okay, gorgeous stuff in Interstellar. Holy crap. So I'm not worshiping at his altar. I don't understand what Zack Snyder did to, to golly to, yes to build Jeez. such a passionate fan base. I've liked some of his movies. I, I like that that first bit in his Dawn of the Dead remake is unassailable. I think that's uh, amazing. The uh, whole movie is quite good, but the opening bit is really just phenomenal horror filmmaking. Uh, I didn't see his Owl movie, but you've come to defense of the I, Owls of Gahul. I think um, the Owls of Gahul might be his top to bottom best movie in terms of just. Character, construction, working out the themes. It's a good film. It's a good film. His Watchmen is is weird to me because for many, many years, everyone's saying, man, if they ever get a chance to make The Watchmen into a movie, that will be like the godfather Mm. of comic book movies. And then Zack Snyder went to do it, and he was like, I'm going to protect the material. I'm going to do the best I could. And he was reasonably faithful. I think he whiffed the ending. I think it changed the context of the story. But Mm. he's actually really, really faithful. And But he made everything so big and arch and over the top that nothing felt intimate and truly meaningful. And it was fascinating The the characters didn't feel human at all because they're too stylized. After all of these decades of looking forward to and hoping The Watchmen would be amazing, we got an okay Watchmen movie, and then it was forgettable. Yeah. That's actually worse than being bad (laughs) for me. So that one didn't work. 300 mm. is kind of impeccable, but it's also like fascist. Well, yeah, which it is celebrates really gross, fascism. Which is gross. It's kind of what it's about. I'll give him that, but it's just kind of unpleasant to me. Mm. Man of Steel, I think, gets a lot of things right, but by the time Batman v Superman comes along, I realize that the things that I thought were bugs in Man of Steel were actually features, and they were all like there intentionally. Mm. They weren't like, oh, we made a few mistakes and we'll fix it next time. It's like, no, we're doubling down on those. That was the point. And I'm like, no, that I think was a huge mistake to make it about like that kind of like cynicism and yeah. hopelessness. And I, I, I disagree with that. I think Batman v Superman is quite bad in both of its yeah, versions. It so I don't quite understand what he did so consistently 
to build such a gigantic yeah, there's and, a, and really, really like sort of frothing I've, fan base. I've, I've heard uh, I've heard him described as like a, a thinking man's Michael Bay, and I would put them right on the same plane. They mm. just they do these over. I suppose Zack Snyder is a little bit more graceful with his visuals, whereas He's, he can paint a picture. Yeah, you know, whereas, whereas picture, Michael no. Bay just edits quickly and it's just yeah. visual chaos in those movies. Yeah, but they're coming at the material just with uh, nothing but visceral overload. I think what happens is I think Snyder is attempting to say something, mm. but I don't think he knows the right way to say it a lot of the time. Yeah, whereas I don't think Michael Bay makes the attempt. No, and I think that's no. why it comes across as Zack Snyder's the thinking man's Michael Bay, but. I don't think he's thinking very hard. No, it's is like the a, they're they're both uh, the way they treat their female characters. They kind of objectify the women in their movies. Time, Michael yeah. Bay, it's in this really kind of gross lad magazine sort of way where they, there's just a lot of ogling and drooling. It's mm-hmm. really disgusting. It's immature. Uh, whereas Zack Snyder will make something like Sucker Punch, where he's going to equate female sexuality with like violence fantasies, which is also unhealthy but at least it's conceptual rather than uh than, yeah. than just pornographic I, there's there's a lot that doesn't work in that i've been meaning to revisit that movie just because it's kind of like in the in the years since it's kind of like just turned into a bit of a miasma so i'm gonna mm. like not say anything too strong about it one way or another i remember not liking it at the time i remember yeah. thinking it was it kind of again it approached something really heavy and i didn't think it handled it well yeah, I, I walked out but thinking i, I can't there say was, with confidence i walked out well. thinking there was something on its mind and then i thought about it and thought no they're just, I, this is WYSIWYG. you what you see is what you get in that movie yeah so yeah i i, I don't understand it either i don't understand yeah. why there's this passionate uh yeah. defense he, he's made of, some movies that really like Zack snyder films he's made some movies that really don't mm-hmm. like and i guess if you just really love the visuals i mean yeah okay fine i get mm-hmm. why you would worship at that altar but beyond that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, in any case, there's a ton. And I try to be as open-minded as I can. And I think to myself, you know, even if I haven't liked everything else a filmmaker has ever done, there might come a day when I see a good movie from them. Mm. And it sometimes happens. And sometimes there are filmmakers who I consistently love, and then they'll make, I don't know, intolerable cruelty. And I'm like, this sucks. (laughs) This is just a bad movie on every level. You just really whiffed this. Um, Yeah. David Ayer was on my shit list for because I saw a couple of his movies. He did like Hard Times. These really really dumb uh, dramas. Harsh Times. Harsh Times. Excuse me. Harsh Times and and I think was Street Kings also a David Ayer film. Uh, I think so. I don't think I saw that one. Just he's doing these really overwrought melodramatic cop dramas that are just dumb and don't have good dialogue or good ideas, and it's just about horrible characters. And at the end of it, it's like, oh, it's just horrible people in the world. And then he made End of Watch, and that made me cry like a baby. And that is excellent. And then he followed up with Fury, which is a very good World War II drama. It's like, oh, wait a minute. He's on a good track. And then he did, like, I think Suicide Squad was his next film. Yeah. And he also did Bright. And there's, like, all these, like, and he's like, no, wait a minute. You you did two good ones in a row. What's going on? It's okay for a filmmaker to be hit and miss. I mean, it'd be nicer if they were all hits. Wouldn't that be great? But it's okay for a filmmaker to just not. To just, it's okay to admit that a filmmaker doesn't do everything right all the time. Yeah. And it's okay to say, like, they've made some bad movies, but they also made End of Watch. I love, that movie's great. I love John Carpenter, who did Village of the Damned. You know, it's yeah, like... it's a bad yeah. John Carpenter movie, but mostly his work's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but anyway, we should move on, but yeah. it's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. Thank you so um, much. 
Here's a letter from uh, Byron Osborne. Hello, Byron Osborne. Hi, Byron. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, do you ever... Get, oh, this is kind of related. Uh, do you ever get sick of the revenge action genre? Oh. You know, a guy's wife gets kidnapped or his daughter dies, and uh, that this gives him enough sympathy from the audience to go kill a thousand people in gruesome ways. Is this genre tasteless? What are some films in the genre you feel do it justice? And what are some that really sicken you? Thanks, hmm. Byron Osborne. Um, I, I wanted to read this one because... Blood revenge isn't real. <laughs> I mean, it has happened. Uh, it has happened, yeah. I suppose. And But this is not as common as the movies would have you believe. That yeah. somebody is uh, visited upon by a great, grievous uh, injury. Usually it's the very sexist trope of murdering a woman in a man's life. And that's the only thing that gets him out to do violent man stuff. Because it's mm-hmm. the only way he can process his emotions. Really healthy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure there are listeners here who have indeed suffered grave injustice in this world. There's a lot of injustice in this world. There's a lot of justice in this world. I like to think that not a single one of our listeners has committed blood revenge. I would, has gone out and murdered someone who has wronged For them. everyone's sake, I hope that's yeah. true. Because that is morally reprehensible. Blood revenge doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Because we're decent and we don't commit murder. Well, we're trying anyway. Yeah. Um... Here's the thing with revenge in a narrative. And revenge is a plot point and, and goes way back. Shakespeare was telling stories about it. The there's, Greeks there's an were entire, telling stories about it. There's an entire subgenre that was really hot during Shakespeare's time, uh, which was based on the plays of Seneca, the mm. Greek playwright. And they called them Senecan revenge tragedies. Oh, yeah. Uh, indeed, uh, Alex Cox, the maker of uh, Repo Man, did a film called The Revenger's Tragedy. He adapted one of the better-known Seneca revenge tragedies of Shakespeare's time that wasn't written by Shakespeare. Revenge Mm. is one of those storytelling devices Mm. that is effective dramatically specifically because it's something that people don't do. Mm. People may have fantasized about it in the heat of the moment, but it's not something that people do or get to do, even if they fantasize mm. about it. It's supposed to be this thing that is so outside the norm of human action mm. that if it happened, it would be compelling. That's the idea. Yeah. Problem is, sometimes things get codified into a genre, and there's a lot of different stories within that genre. And then at the very least, in a fictional setting, what should be a thing that's like, oh, how fascinating. No, I, you don't see that becomes old hat because a whole bunch of movies have done it. And then that ruins whatever power it might have had. If we have only had a handful of revenge stories every so often, they might have a lot of power. Mm. But because it has become a cliched subgenre, it's been robbed of that power. And uh, a lot of them uh, are based on this kind of righteous indignation that are communicating to an audience that this sort of revenge is kind of okay. You can usually relate to the person who's getting the revenge, whether they're wronged by a, a, a singular bad guy or wronged by a society. Yeah. Uh, and it puts in people's heads that violent retribution is kind of okay. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really dangerous message yeah. to be putting out there in the ether. But when I do it, it's fine. Like yeah. that... Mm. I'm kind of surprised that we were able to have revenge uh, stories after Hamlet. Yeah. Ha- Hamlet is the ultimate deconstruction of the revenge story. Yeah, it's true. It's about uh, somebody who's... It's a meta who is, revenge story. It, it's, Hamlet is a character who's in one of those Senecan revenge tragedies. Uh, his family was wronged, and it is now his job, his role, is the revenger. 
Yeah, his he, daughter's ghost literally comes to him and, and says, says you Your need, uncle killed me, yeah. married your mother, you need to kill him, that's your job. And Hamlet's role in this is, okay, I'm now I get revenge. And in a, a lesser tragedy, he would go about very meticulously murdering all of the people who have revenge. Just right away, next him. scene. Yeah, and, and he would become this sort of c- cathartic um, instrument of violence. Uh, but Hamlet's downfall is that he's a moral person. Yeah. He understands that taking a human life isn't something that we ordinarily do. Mm-hmm. So he constructs all of these stalling tactics. Well, I have to kind of make sure. I have to prove it. Uh, you I, know, can't, I can't do this because a ghost told me to. I need to know. He's an artist. He's a student. He was busy studying about the world and learning about how grand things are. What a piece of work is man. How infinite a reason. Yeah, he was and, in uh, love. He had his whole life ahead of him. And this would ruin everything. So, yeah, getting revenge is not in his makeup. And that, you know, he eventually kind of is forced into it as actually undoing the entire court. It's a great story. Uh, we know it. <laughs> yeah. And yet we're still going back to these kind of revenge tropes because we still have the, that, like, spark of violence in us. And yeah. I think every time I see one of these revenge movies, I can only think that there's something in humanity, in society in general, that thirsts for violence so strongly that we have to keep coming back to it all the time. Yeah. And it gives me kind of a dim view of humanity that these revenge films are constantly being, constantly being made. There are seven Death Wish films, yeah. uh, technically, if you count Death Sentence. Yeah. Um, and the remake. And the remake, yeah. Because yeah. there were five with the Charles Bronze and there was Death Sentence and there was the Death Wish remake. It's like, we're so fixated on Paul Kersey Architect uh, getting revenge and murdering and wasting creeps in his language yeah. that uh, we we just sort of start seeing him as a, a violent hero after a while. That said, I love Death Wish 3 uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's so bonkers. Sometimes an irresponsible movie can be fun. I, I uh, think, like yeah. Taken is a, a really, and Commando. Mm-hmm. These are incredibly morally irresponsible movies. They're fun. Those ones I find incredibly fun. They're, they're well made enough, yeah. and I don't think that they're inter- they're not terribly apologetic about how bad their dudes are. Yeah. Um, they just happen to be aimed in the right place this time, and that's why they get away with it. Yeah. Um, but I do think there are some very, very good revenge movies that have been made over the years. Um, we just had one very recently this last year with Promising Young Woman. Oh, there you go. Which is, and I think the reason that one works is because it's taking a story that other movies have handled very ungracefully and very tastelessly in fact. and actually trying to focus on it in a much more thoughtful way in a much mm. more humane way in a more um, sort of psychologically rich way yeah. um, that I think it, it gets away with it. Um, another movie recent, I actually, I missed this when it first came out and I finally caught up with it, I think last year and I really was taken by it. I think it got a little overlooked mm. Uh, but if you want to look at it this way, I think it's very easy to. Creed Two is a revenge film. Yeah, because yeah. the, the Dolph Lundgren character. Is yeah, the well, one, yeah, well, two reasons. On one hand, Dolph Lundgren is like weaponized his own son in order to take his revenge and reassert himself mm. in the boxing community uh, against the community that abandoned him. But also, the protagonist of Creed Two, Adonis Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan, uh, 
he's getting revenge for his father's death and he's willing to throw away his entire career over mm-hmm. this. And again, this isn't like some crazy elaborate revenge. There's actually a wonderful mechanism in sports where he just gets to fight the guy. Literally, and, yeah. yeah. He gets to do that. It actually makes sense in this context because there actually does get to be a fight, a couple of fights actually, where he actually gets to get revenge in a, in a legally sanctioned ethical way. That's actually a really smart movie. I love Creed 2. I think Creed 2 is great. <laughs> Creed I, two is, I was really impressed by it. Creed, Creed 2 is pretty good. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really, really, really good one. Um, and then, of course, there's the revenge movies where the person getting revenge is the bad guy. Look at Cape Fear. Okay. He's getting revenge. Mm-hmm. He's getting in the, in the original movie, he's getting revenge for no particularly good reason. In the remake... His like I think his own lawyer betrayed him, so he actually does feel like the agreed well, in, party. In, in, in the legit- original, the the he was testified against, right? But if memory serves, I'm gonna actually if memory serves in the remake, uh, he wasn't just testified against; like his own lawyer sabotaged the case. Oh, okay, that's um, that's different than the original. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen Scorsese's version. If memory serves, um, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since I've seen the remake actually. Uh, but um, yeah, I think I think like he actually like intentionally gave a bad defense in order to get this oh, this God. monster in jail. Um so that one's good because again the and and the hero is also morally compromised in a lot of ways. And both of those versions of Cape Fear, both are good mm-hmm. movies. But because the villain is doing it, it's okay. It works. I mean Nightmare on Elm Street is a revenge movie. Yeah. Freddy is getting revenge on the generation of on of the kids of the people who killed him who were getting revenge on him for killing their kids. So it's a, all a cycle. I, what I appreciate about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, though, is that the, the victims are innocents. And that was something that interested Wes Craven through a lot of his movies, yeah. was uh, k- kids, younger people, being punished for the sins of their parents. Yeah. So again, you can totally tell a good story with revenge, but you have to think about... is uh, You can tell that story ethically, either by making the person in, giving the revenge... Uh, uh, the bad guy mm. or one of them uh, or by really being thoughtful about it and trying to make sure you present it in a framework. Yeah. And sometimes it is possible to tell a totally irresponsible revenge story and have a good time, but it's kind of tricky because again, you're asking the audience to be really gross. There is an amazing video. You gotta see mm. it's a, a, and it's just so irresponsible. It's incredible. It's called how to get revenge. And it is a how-to video hosted by Linda Blair. Oh, I've seen this one. <laughs> it's astounding. Oh my God. This is from like 1989 or 89, something. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's from like the director or the writer of that comedy, Repossessed. So I think it's supposed to be a comedy. But it's actually really grossly irresponsible because it's basically just Linda Blair. There's, it opens with Linda Blair saying, have you ever wanted to get revenge? You ever want to just destroy someone's life because they they hurt you? And she literally says, you wouldn't be a human being if you didn't. Okay, already you are assuming we are on a grotesque moral wavelength. And then the rest of the video is full of people, some of whom are actors, obviously, some maybe, I don't know. But all giving advice on how to ruin people's life with revenge. Many of the things that they suggest in this video are actual crimes, Fraud, uh, uh, defamation of character, uh, you know, how to ruin someone's marriage, how to ruin someone's job, how to destroy their car. They're almost all things you can do. Like, if, if it's supposed to be a comedy, it's wildly irresponsible because it's actually giving real advice on how to destroy someone's life. Mm. If it's trying to destroy someone's life, then it's just trying to destroy someone's life and it's fucked up. 
It's a weird thing. It's one of the weirdest <laughs> videos I've ever seen. You can probably find that on YouTube. You can find that on thing, YouTube, yeah. I think. But like, and I, and seriously, just watch it and just be astounded at how irresponsible it is. Don't do any of that shit. No, at all. I cannot. It's, it's, I'm not. Work, I'm not endorsing it at all. It's a work of satire, if anything. But if it's a work of satire, it never tips its hand enough. Yeah. To indicate, or maybe that it's, uh, because it, because all of the advice is stuff you could do. Maybe just watch Repossessed instead. Repossessed is actually pretty funny. I like so Repossessed. It's an, it's, it's an it's an airplane style comedy of the Exorcist movie starring Linda Blair as her character from The Exorcist. Uh, uh, it's ish, but ish, but like regardless, um, it it it's really fucking funny. <laughs> Nobody talks like, about it anymore, but it's really fucking like funny. It, it, it's insanely stupid, but yeah. that's its appeal. Like uh, a lot of Leslie stuff. Nielsen is the Exorcist carries the Max Mancito character, but he's he doesn't play Father Marin. He plays Father May I. Father May I. <laughs> yeah, and it's, someone knocks on the door. Father May yeah, I. Yeah. Yes, you may. Yes. <laughs> Dumb jokes. Oh God. Anyway, we got to move on. Last last letter. Okay, uh, last letter here. Uh, here is a letter from I had one picked up. Sorry, my phone closed out. Uh, this one's from Stubble. Ooh, hello Stubble. Hi Stubble. Uh, hello Bibbs and Moister Mahul with three U's, or as I like to call you, the Maharaja of movies and the Wizard of weirdness. Which which of us is which? Uh, anyway, I don't know. We, we can we can debate that later. We, we'll flip a coin. Uh, earlier today, I started to wonder if the cult genre B movies are going to disappear for new generations. Uh, just to be clear, when I'm talking about genre movies, I care. Uh, I more or less mean uh, fantasy, science fiction, and horror movies. When I was younger, there weren't that many high-budget genre movies. If I were lucky, we got many between maybe two or three of them a year. This coincided with the VCR and with the recording of movies that were being shown on TV. There was also the copying of rented movies or those that your friends had, which you then made a copy of. I didn't. I didn't do that, mm. uh, but that was a practice. Uh, back then, it wasn't that common with the abundance of movies to buy, at least not here in Sweden. Okay, so, locational. Um, This meant that you had to get your genre movies like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T., and other horror and sci-fi and fantasy movies. Uh, Well, you had... When you had watched Star Wars and Indiana Jones a gazillion times, there weren't that many high-quality genre movies out there. Mm. E.T. was good, but that's not a movie you can watch as frequently as Indiana Jones. It's good. It's not Mm. popcorn entertaining, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I can see Uh, your point. Yeah. I'm not sure I agree, but I can see your point. It's not not violent enough. It's It's not escapist. It's actually about like real emotions and yeah. things. Yeah. Um, that meant uh, when you went uh, when you went to your version of a blockbuster outlet and checked out what was there, uh, you were lucky if the new movie if there was a new movie like The Fugitive with Harrison Ford or something similar. But there usually wasn't any new high budget movie that looked exciting in Sweden. So what did you do? You went to the horror section of the science fiction science fiction section and see what was available the next week you asked your friends which B movie they had seen and maybe they had made a copy and in the, if that was the case you borrowed it uh, this combined with having movie marathons where you started watching movies at 6 in the evening and didn't stop until 10 in the morning the next day and it resulted in you watching a lot of odd stuff of the eight or so movies we watched, we were lucky if two of them were good movies. The rest were B-movies, which had had become cult classics. I'm thinking of movies like Critters or Maximum Overdrive or Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah. Today, there's an abundance of high-budget quality genre movies and TV series out there. And I think the cult B-movie is falling by the wayside. Many of this seem, uh, many people think this is a good problem, but I can't help think that new generations won't be uh, able to see movies like, say, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste. I'm aware that I view this with a filter of nostalgia. For every Tremors or Return of the Living Dead, we had to see maybe three bad ones like Hobgoblins <laughs> oh God, or okay. Conan the Destroyer. Yes, I know you like it, but for me, it's gone awful. Oh, I, like it. I, 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 mean, like it I love Fine, Conan the yeah, Destroyer. 
Uh, what do you guys think? Will the new generation have the same kind of genre cult B movies, uh, or do they have too many good high budget movies and other things to like in terms of video or will vid- things like video games hinder them from seeing B movies and will cult classics be obsolete for them? I will end this with a quote by Officer Wild: morality, art, morality like art means drawing a line someplace. Mm. Thank you. Stubble. Uh, I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly because Whitney clearly needs a glass of water. I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of kind of running out of steam here. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, I think at the heart of what you're talking about isn't so much that we might lose B-movies mm. because I think we're going to have them in one form or another and I'll explain what I mean in a second. I think at the root of what you're talking about is how uh, scarcity affected our viewing habits. Yes. Because video stores yes. only had so much content, TV, you didn't have DVR in your television, you were limited by whatever TV was being shown or that you had recorded on your VCR. Mm. Or yeah, whatever was at your local blockbuster. Exactly. And that might have been a fair number of films, but in the end, there was only so much of it. And now, even though we complain about the lack of variety in a lot of streaming services, there's no shortage of stuff if all you're looking for is stuff. Yeah. If you're just looking for stuff, you'll find a lot of it, and most of it's going to be on the recent side. A lot of it's going to be the high-profile stuff. And there is an opportunity, and I'm sure we've all fallen victim to it at least once in a while, uh, to fall into sort of a recency bias and just watch whatever's coming out lately, you know? Um, And as a result, you're not necessarily going to, and I hesitate to use this word, but I can't think of a better one off the top of my head, settle for what else you can find that looks close enough, and then maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised. That's not how a lot of people consume their movies anymore. Mm -hmm. You could argue that that's disappointing and that maybe will lead to fewer discoveries, and maybe it will. On the other hand, I would say that there are two distinct uh, uh, contradictions to that for me. Uh, One, as more sci-fi, action, horror, fantasy movies get pushed into the bigger mainstream uh, and and cease to be cult oddities and Mm. are now like sort of dominating the discourse... Other kinds of movies are becoming the cult oddities, and that's how we get films like Cats. Well, or, I was uh, going to say Mandy, but okay. Mandy might be another good <clears throat> example. That's that's certainly, a, a, well, I'll, I'll, that comes to my second point, but I think that there's other types of movies that are becoming cult films that maybe aren't fitting within those particular genres, and maybe they'll be the cult films for a little while. Hmm. I think that's fine. It's interesting, yeah, but I think was... the other thing is, I just want to think... I one thing hearing about people talking in our emails on this podcast, I am very heartened to know just how many people, even though everyone keeps telling us people only care about new movies, mm-hmm. who are our age, younger, sometimes very young, are actively seeking out older films, weirder films, cult films, sci-fi films, low-budget films, bizarre films. Yeah, people still want that stuff. And they're going to find it, and yeah. when they well, find it, they're going to share it, so I think there's always going to be a market. Yeah, there, there's always been an underground. Sometimes, uh, if you're of the right mind, you know where to go for it. Uh, there was a time when you could only see certain kinds of weird movies in theaters after midnight. <clears throat> Excuse me, or at drive-in theaters. Yeah. And if you were already on the wavelength, you knew to go to those theaters, those grindhouses, and see these weird exploitation movies. Uh, with the advent of home video, those things became a lot more easily accessed. But again, you had to be the kind of person who was delving into the bottom shelves and going into the cult sections and figuring, learning about these movies. 
I remember there was a big, when we finally kind of mutated over to streaming, there was this movement toward this kind of new wave of outsider cult films, the works of, say, like Neil Breen or Birdemic or Troll 2. Mm -hmm. This was a whole wave of these uh, outsider cult films that were getting, still getting a lot of traction. The problem is when those things hit the internet, a certain kind of saturation happened very quickly. Mm. It took many, many years for Rocky Horror to reach the mainstream, which it did. There was an episode of Glee around it. Something like Troll 2 got saturated over the course of maybe like five years. Well, between, five years between, after it was like it was rediscovered. Like, it was like, like kind of rediscovered by a lot of underground cult, cult film loving audiences. It got pushed and hyped up. And because it, it, things proliferate through the internet a lot faster, it started getting a lot of midnight screenings. There's a documentary film about it. Now everybody knows about Troll 2. And now it kind of burned out. It's almost passe to, to watch Troll 2 as your bad movie night movie. Everybody's seen it at this point. I think that was sort of like the last gasp of old world cult films as we knew them, as we sort of used them as cult passwords, as things you kind of had to discover and stay underground. Those things are still out there. The underground is still out there. Uh, we just need to find it. The mainstream has become sort of pervasive and has controlled so many corners of the discourse that it's kind of difficult to know where to look now. Yeah, it's the mainstream is uh, basically it was always hmm. the predominant voice, but they just control everything. Now yeah. that they control the means of distribution for a lot of these movies, hmm. in terms of they decide they they own all the streaming services, hmm. they're not going to highlight a lot of that weird also, stuff as much, yeah. and it's just going to get pushed aside. Also, uh, just general attitudes about outsider being an outsider have changed. There yeah. was a time when being an outsider was the cool thing to do rejecting the mainstream was the cool thing to do. Uh, that's, that's what made you cool was, was rejection of the mainstream. Uh, that's my generation at work. That's Gen X. Yeah. Uh, now the cool thing to do is catch up on WandaVision, mm -hmm. have a theory about WandaVision, the new thing, <laughs> you know, be, being right on the cutting edge of what's hot and new. So you can tweet about it right now. Well, I think that one's uh, weird because I feel like that used to be the cult thing. Mm -hmm. But it became the mainstream thing. But we still have this protective attitude of it as if it's still a cult oddity. Exactly. And the, it could uh, go away at any moment instead mm -hmm. of being the institution that's not going to go anywhere that's, anytime that's been the, soon. That's been the most frustrating thing about the wave of this mainstream appeal. These things are hugely popular. Everybody has seen them. Everybody has an, at, you know, their websites and careers devoted to talking about this certain kind of movies. And yet you insult the movies and the fans get really defensive as if you're destroying it. Yeah. It's like like we're, no, we're not that's... punching down at some little movie <laughs> that only you like. This, this is the multi-billion dollar corporate entity we're, we're, that we're, we're criticizing. We're, we're shooting spitballs at Cthulhu here. We're not We're not doing any kind of damage. Yeah. We're not taking anything like, away from we're, you. Like, we're not the ones with the power, hmm. the guys on Twitter with a few thousand yeah, so followers. We're, we're just not. Where is the underground? I wish I knew. Yeah, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of scouring where I can. I'm trying to find the, the weird movies. Occasionally, we'll see something like Psycho Gorman, and we'll try to spread the word on Psycho Gorman, so uh, which is really good. That's a cult kind of movie. It's yeah. this low-budget monster film. If you're bemoaning, like, oh, where's the new Dead mm. Alive Psycho Gorman? Go see Psycho Gorman. Yeah, it's great. L li listen to the people who are trying to find that kind of stuff. Are we those people? Not really. We're too old. Yeah, uh, we're looking, <laughs> we're but looking. We're, we're not going to... Yeah. We don't have our fingers on the pulse the way we might yeah, have Yeah, exactly. Once, you, know? Yeah. you know where you look? Look on TikTok. Yeah. Ask, ask somebody who's in high school right now. Ask a Gen Z. They're going to know where the weird stuff is. And if you're lucky, they'll share. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you, everybody. That's a great letter, by the way. I'm glad we got a chance to have the conversation. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. Thank you, everybody who's thinking about writing in. We hope to hear from you. Once again, our email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode. You can't get to them all, but we sure do try. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is it for this week's We've Got Mail. You can find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network, where you can get a ton of exclusive shows, including shows about Batman, shows about Star Trek, shows about the Academy Awards, shows about not on, uh, what, what's not on Disney Plus and should be, commentary tracks, the works. You get to vote for future episodes. Uh, every single one of our patrons is the reason why we're here. If you could, if you can afford to join up, we sure would love to have you. And if you can't, well, leave us a review wherever you find us. That would really, really help. Uh, if you are in the mood for some soap, may I suggest going to Etsy.com and uh, looking up Salt Cat Soap, all one word, and uh, checking out the soap designs uh, from one M. Lapis da Silva, my uh, my wife and partner who is not only a brilliant uh, author and artist, and some of her sketches are now uh, stickers over there, uh, but also makes some really incredible uh, soaps that mm. you can purchase there. And they're they're getting really good reviews. And uh, thank you, everybody, who's ordered so far. We hope you enjoy and continue to enjoy because we're not going anywhere. And um, I think that's it. So thank you, everybody, once again. Sincerely yours, Hibs and Whitney. <laughs>